Good morning. Good to see you guys. All the kiddos uh, are going to a thing called tween scenes. I guess EJ's leading that today. I want to welcome all of you. So glad that you're here. Appreciate you uh, braving the elements. It's no fun getting out in the rain. Some of you could potentially melt, and so I appreciate risking life and limb to be here. Uh, I have a pack of underwear. Uh, the reason I have this, we're doing this thing right now. We're partnered with the Family Resource Centers of the local school systems. Uh, we specifically are partnering with RDC this year, so we got our, our hands cut out for us, but uh, they, these people are on the front lines of meeting the needs of some of our most vulnerable population, and we want to do everything we can to make sure they've got the resources that they need uh, to fill these needs. So um, one of the things that we're doing is a thing called Undie Sundays, Undie Sundays, and uh, we just want you to bring new underwear uh, for these, uh, these kiddos. Apparently, this is one of their biggest needs. I just want you to think about what that means. There are so many kids running around here uh, in our county, and, and they can't even, they don't even have access to clean new underwear. So we're going to help fill that need. So uh, bring it next Sunday. We've got um, a box over here uh, that you can drop it off. So uh, it will be through the end of September. Good question. Uh, also, today, I just want um, us to begin by saying a word of prayer uh, for my wife, uh, this time last week, her mom was rushed to the emergency room. They found a tumor, a cancerous tumor the size of a football on her ovaries. And so it's not a good situation at all. Uh, but um, my wife's really having a hard time. She's super close with her mom. Uh, she's been in Bowling Green all week right now. They're at Vanderbilt. Uh, so I've just can we just all gather together as a church and just pray in agreement? Um, cancer is from the pit of hell. And I hate it with all my heart, uh, but Jesus is the king, and he has power over disease. Amen? So let's pray. Uh, Lord, we just come together right now, and uh, I pray a blessing on, on just our congregation. And there's so many needs, Lord, and heartaches that we experience, and it's overwhelming. And sometimes we just don't even know what to do. And uh, it's in these moments, Lord, that we can come to you, and we can claim your promises and lean in to who you are. Uh, you are the God of all comfort. Uh, you are the God that gives hope. Uh, you are the God of resurrection. You're the God of healing. Uh, you're the God of second chances. Uh, you're the God that nothing is impossible for you. And so, Lord, we just come together in agreement, and we just lift up all of our burdens to you. Uh, there are people in this room that they're carrying all sorts of stuff with them. And so as a church family, we come together and just ask, Lord, that you will meet the needs those that have been spoken and those that haven't. Lord, specifically, we just lift my wife up to you. And Lord, I pray you'll give her peace and strength. And we pray for Kathy. And Lord, we pray you'll heal her body for your glory, Lord, for your glory. Only you can do it. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you guys for doing that. Um, just keep her in your prayers. Today, I want to talk to you about the king. The king is crucified. We're in Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. We've been studying Mark for, since January of 2021. We're almost two years into it, and I appreciate those of you who have stayed with us the whole time. I know uh, I've enjoyed it. I hope that you have. Uh, but every scene in the biography of Jesus, 
every moment of Jesus' life, actually every second of history has been leading up to the passage that we're reading today where Jesus is crucified between two criminals. Okay, this is the culmination of history. This is the most pivotal moment in all of human history, what we're reading today. And with that in mind, I'm kind of blown away when you really think about it. The Bible has very little to say about the crucifixion. Have you ever thought about that? Very little to say. Uh, we know about crucifixion from history. Uh, we know about crucifixion from Mel Gibson's The Passion. How many of you have watched that? Man, that is an intense movie, grueling what Jesus went through. Uh, but we do not get any of the gory details of the crucifixion from the Bible. It says very, very little about it. Why? I believe that the gospel writers don't want us to pity Jesus. You see, if Jesus is just a poor country preacher that gets punished by the establishment, then we're missing the point of why Jesus came. You see, I think the gospel writers, the biographers of Jesus, they want us to envision Jesus as a brave warrior, a king who single-handedly takes on the forces of evil, sacrificing his own life to win the victory. You see, if we pity Jesus, then we get to this place where we think that because our Savior suffered, then we should just pursue suffering for the sake of suffering. And we should, we should just come to terms with the fact of always losing. M.O. for this, this, when you get into this mentality of, of we just want to pity Jesus and we want to, we want to follow Jesus because we're of emotionalism, uh, it gets to the place where you, just, you, 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 you think that suffering is good just because suffering is good. But, but in reality, I believe today what we'll see is that we should follow Jesus not because we feel sorry for him. We should follow Jesus because we trust and respect him. He selflessly suffered and died, defeating evil to save his bride. And because he did that, we should willingly, selflessly suffer to defeat the evil in our life and to save the lost and the dying in our world. Let's all stand together. Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 22. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Then they crucified him and divided his clothes, casting lots for them to, be, to decide what each would get. Now it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge written against him was the king of the Jews. They crucified two criminals with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, Ha! The one who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself by coming down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priest with the scribes were mocking him among themselves, saying, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him taunted him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for each and every person that's gathered here today, everybody that's watching online. I pray a blessing on each and every one. We've come here today because we, we do respect you and we do trust you. And we acknowledge that you're the king, uh, that you're God, the God of all creation, 
And Lord, we want to better submit and surrender our lives to you. I pray that you will help us to do that. Lord, speak clearly through me. Have your way in this place. Holy Spirit, use me. Use me today, Lord. Help me to be your vessel. As you stand there with your eyes closed and your head bowed, take a moment, pray for those around you. Pray for those that are watching online. They might be drawn to the Lord. Pray for this crazy world that we're living in. And take a moment, pray for yourself. Father, speak to me. I'm ready to hear what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Our passage today has more to do with Jesus being the courageous king than Jesus painfully being crucified. The clues to that are, number one, there's no details given about the crucifixion or any of the biographies of Jesus. If you read the gospel narratives, you, you see very little details about the crucifixion. They don't talk about really the nails in the wrist, how long they were, what, what sounds Jesus made as they were going through. They don't talk about the blood gushing out and how, how much he was just covered in it. It doesn't really talk about that. It doesn't talk about how high the cross was lifted up. It doesn't talk about the, crowd, the crows pecking at his eyes. It doesn't talk about Mary wailing. All these details would really be a dramatic effect. It would really resonate with a lot of people, but the Bible does not say much about that. Here's another clue that this passage has more to, Je- to do with Jesus being king than Jesus being crucified. Mark chapter 15, verse 26 and 27 This is in the middle of this narrative about Jesus being crucified. Right in the middle of it, it says, the inscription of the charge written against him was what? The king of the Jews. And then, verse 27, they crucified him, crucified two criminals with him, one on his right and one on his left. Now, I read that passage this week, that verse, and verse 27 reminds me of an earlier scene in Mark. Jesus had just told his disciples, you'll remember this, that those who had sacrificed on this world, sacrificed for the gospel, would be rewarded a hundred times over in the age to come. You remember Jesus saying that. He said, if you sacrifice for me in the gospel, then in the age to come, you'll be rewarded a hundred times over. So this gets a couple of the disciples thinking about the kingdom of God, and, and they want to go ahead and institute it. And so they say this, Mark chapter 10, verse 37, they answered him, Allow us to set at what? At your right and at your left in your glory. Uh, Another biographer of Jesus, the same passage says, allow us to set one on your right and one on your left when you come into your kingdom. See this image here of the cross, three crosses on a hill, This is one of the most recognizable and influential images, just this silhouette in human history. But when we look at this picture, the gospel writers don't want us to think of a victim. They want us to see a victory. They want us to see Jesus Christ enthroned on the cross, crowned with thorns, overlooking his kingdom with one on his right and one on his left. You see, the Roman soldiers, they presented Jesus as a a pitiful and pathetic king. But Mark is encouraging us to think about Jesus as the king of kings, as the king who is most worthy of honor and glory and praise and devotion. Mark does this 
by subtly comparing the work of King Jesus to the work of earlier kings, specifically the very first king, Adam, and Israel's greatest king, David. Now, you really got to be a Bible nerd to see this, so I'm going to point it out to you today, okay, if you'll stick with me. You guys cool with being Bible nerds for a few minutes? The first king was Adam. He's the king of the world because he was the only human on the world. So he's the king. He's in charge. Ruled a kingdom marked by perfect peace, unlimited abundance, and heavenly beauty. The very first man charged with filling the earth and subduing it. But Adam was corrupted. What happened to Adam? He didn't fight for his bride, Eve. He didn't protect her. and Instead, he allowed this slithering, tempting, lying serpent, a snake, to slither into this most holy place, this beautiful garden where they walked hand in hand with God. And this, this, he made room. He allowed the snake to get in. The snake tempted Adam and Eve to consume the forbidden fruit, which they did. Afterward, they were consumed with guilt and shame, Adam was made self-conscious about his nakedness, and so he hid from God in the garden. This was our first king. God covered his nakedness with the skin of a sacrificed animal, and he exiled them from the garden, so they lost their kingdom. But God made a promise to humanity by pronouncing a curse on this snake that slithered into the garden. You remember this. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. God says, I will put hostility between you, the snake, and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your what? Head. Remember that. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. The greatest king in Israel's history was a guy named David. This is thousands of years after Adam and Eve. Uh, God's people had established a nation. Uh, This is after Noah. This is after Egypt. This is after the wilderness. And there they are in this promised land, established a nation, a, a place flowing with milk and honey. They have a king, but this young man, this teenage boy named David, is anointed to be the second king of God's people. Of all of God's people, David is the only one who's courageous enough to face a enemy a giant enemy named Goliath. You guys remember this story, David and Goliath. 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 5. Then a champion named Goliath from Gath came out from the Philistine camp. He was nine feet, nine inches tall, and wore a bronze helmet. And a bronze, what's that, what's that word? Scale armor. Bronze scale armor that weighed 125 pounds. Who, what else has scales? Okay. Verse 48, skip down. When the Philistines started forward to attack him, David ran quickly to the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone, slung it, and hit the Philistine where? On his forehead. The stone stank into his, what? Forehead, and he fell face down to the ground. David defeated the Philistine with a sling and a sword, a stone. David overpowered the Philistine and king killed him without having a sword. So where did David strike the Philistine? How did he defeat the Philistine? He hit him in the head. Isn't that what God promised would happen, that a king would come 
that would defeat the enemy by crushing their head. Isn't that what? And so maybe this is God's promised king, the one that's come to defeat God's enemies and redeem God's people and lead them to glory. Well, Jonathan, who was the actual king, Saul, the king at the time, he believed that David, this little teenage shepherd boy, he believed that this was God's promised king. And so this is what Jonathan did, 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 4. Then Jonathan removed the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his military tunic, his sword, his bow, and his belt. And so Jonathan, he gave up his royal robe and clothed David with it so that David would not look like a shepherd boy but would look like a prince. Years later, David became the king. And he led God's people to the highest point in their history. All their enemies were defeated. The kingdom was expanding. The people were prosperous. Everyone thought that this was the return to Eden. But David fell short as the king. Like Adam, David didn't fight for his kingdom. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring, when the kings marched out to war, David sent Joab with his officers in all Israel. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. He didn't fight when he was supposed to. And his idol's hands made room for the tempter to slither into his life. And so David, idle in the spring, everybody else is off the war. He doesn't fight for his people. He looks across the way, and what does he see? He sees a woman naked on her roof, bathing. And so now David is confronted with a forbidden fruit. This woman is married, not his wife. And so David indulges in the forbidden fruit, commits adultery with a woman who is Married, not his wife. And like Adam, David tries to hide his sin, which leads to Bathsheba's husband, a faithful soldier, being placed on the front lines in an impossible situation, and eventually this man, Bathsheba's husband, is killed, which began a series of events in which God's people were exiled from the promised land, just like Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden. So what we see here, are two kings in perfect position. Couldn't have been in a better position to accomplish God's plans and purposes, but they lost their kingdom and they hurt their people for the sake of selfish ambition and vain conceit. Contrast that with Jesus. Mark chapter 15, verse 22. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the what? Place of the skull. In light of the history that I just shared with you about these kings, which one of these words sticks out to you? Do you think it's a coincidence that Mark translates the word Golgotha? I don't think so. I think he wanted us to know, to make sure all of us people would know 2,000 years later that this word Golgotha means skull. Do you think it's a coincidence that God planned of all the places around Jerusalem that God planned for his son to be crucified on a hill called the skull. You see, God's plan, which Mark highlights, is that unlike Adam and David, Jesus fights for his people. The cross functions as a stake 
Christ uses to drive through the skull of the enemy, fulfilling God's promises made to humanity that a promised king would come and crush the serpent's head. Mark chapter 15, verse 23, they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Wine, in this instance, uh, it was common during a crucifixion that people in pity in mercy, they would put a sponge filled with wine and myrrh, uh, and, and they would lift it up to the person being crucified who would drink it and serve as a painkiller. Unlike Adam and David, Jesus refused to consume the forbidden fruit of the vine because to do so would be to disobey God. God called Christ to drink full the fury of God's wrath on behalf of the elect. In perfect obedience, Jesus submitted to the will of the Father. Verse 24, then they crucified him and divided his clothes, casting lots to, for them to decide what each would get. And so they, they two, two points to ponder here. Number one, Jesus was naked as he hung on the cross. They divided his clothes. Number two, a Roman soldier in the days following was walking around in Jesus' robe. They cast lots for Jesus' robe. He's naked on the cross. So one of the soldiers wins, and so he takes the robe, and now he's wearing it around Jerusalem. Adam was naked and ashamed because he sinned. He had something to hide. So he covered his body in animal skins. David was exposed when Bathsheba became pregnant. Even though her husband was off the war, David tried to hide his sin by covering over his tracks. Jesus was naked and felt no shame because he had no sin. He had nothing to hide, and so his robe was used to cover over someone else. Verse 29, those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads, saying, ha, the one who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself by coming down from the cross. Adam was interested in saving himself. He hid from God. He threw his wife under the bus. You remember this part of the story. God comes to him. He says, what have you done? And he says, it's not my fault. It's the woman that you gave me. It's her fault, and it's your fault. David was interested in saving himself. He tried to hide his sin. He used his power and his position to try and cover over his dirty tracks, and he had Uriah killed. Jesus, on the other hand, was only interested in saving others. He refused to come down from the cross so that he could secure the victory for his people, even though it cost him his life. Mark chapter 15, verse 31. In the same way, the chief priests with the scribes were marking him along among themselves, saying, he saved others, he did save others, but he cannot save himself. He saved others, but he can't save himself. Jesus was a savior. The, all the evidence was there. They've seen it. Healed the sick, made the blind to see, made the lame to walk, made the dead to rise again. He fed the multitude. He calmed the storms. He cast demons out. Even his enemies acknowledge Jesus as a savior. I want you to hold that on to that. We're going to come back to it in a second. Verse 32, let the Messiah, they said, the king of Israel, come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him taunted. 
They said, come down from the cross, save yourself, and then we'll see that you are who you claim to be, and then we will believe. Why didn't Jesus do it? Why didn't Jesus just, I mean, like, macho man Randy Savage, Hulk Hogan, rip open the cross, you know, and come just float Superman style, call down heaven, fire from heaven and burn up all his enemies. Then the whole world will know that Jesus is who he claims to be. Why didn't he do that? Why doesn't Jesus right now just open up the heavens, float down, angel army behind him, the whole heavenly choir singing. I don't know what song they're singing, but it's just an awesome song, powerful. Why didn't he do that? Because that's what people need, isn't it? Just give us some physical evidence, and then we'll worship you. This is what I'm learning. It's taken me a long time. Seeing and believing doesn't make one a Christian. These people, they had all the evidence, right? We just acknowledge that. They had all the evidence. They saw all the wonder-working power of Jesus. Nicodemus, who was part of the Jewish ruling class, he came to Jesus, John chapter 3, verse 2. Listen to what he says. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. Why do we know that? For no one could perform the signs you do unless God were with him. These people who wanted Jesus dead, they saw. They had the evidence. It's all right there. We know you're from God because of the wonders that you perform. On top of that, they recognized Jesus as a king. The inscription above his cross, official Roman documentation, Jesus, king of the Jews. They took Jesus as king seriously enough they felt threatened by him to the point where they had him killed. They admitted Jesus was Savior. They recognized him as king, but they didn't become his disciples. Why? Because acknowledging facts about Jesus doesn't make one a Christian. James chapter 2, verse 19. You believe that God is one? Good. Even the demons believe And they shudder. What does that tell you? The demons in hell, even they believe that there is a God. Even they are willing to acknowledge the undeniable facts that there is a God, that he put on skin and bones, that he died on a cross, that he was buried in the ground, that three days later he rose again. Even they believe that, but they're not Christians. Even they believe that, but they're not going to heaven. Even they believe that, but they they are not part of the kingdom of God. You see, there are many today who would reject Jesus Christ no matter what. If If Jesus came and stood by them on their bedside and said, hey, I am real, they would still deny Jesus. They still wouldn't worship Jesus. Let me read to you a quote. This is a a guy named Dan Barker. He's the founder of Freedom From Religion Foundation. He says this, even if Jesus did exist, 
rose from the dead. There is a God. I don't deny any of that. Doesn't, does not mean that he is my Lord. If he did exist, I will go happily to hell. I would be worse of a hell. It would be worse of a hell for me to bow down before a Lord, regardless of the legend and the historicity issue. Even if I agreed 100%, I would still reject that being as a Lord of my life because I'm better than that. I cannot accept Jesus as Lord. You're much freer to live and enjoy your life unshackled from the demands. You see, friends, at the heart of the matter, it isn't about evidence. It's about submission. At the heart of the matter, it isn't about historical accuracy. It is about personal autonomy. Jesus didn't come in the flesh so that you would believe in him. Many believe in him, and if they could get their hands on him, they'd kill him again. Jesus lived, and he died, and he rose again so that you would trust him as Savior and submit to him as Lord. Haven't we all heard somebody say, I wouldn't worship a God who? Haven't you heard somebody say that? I wouldn't worship a God who X, Y, and Z doesn't doesn't meet my ethical standards, doesn't meet the way that I view politics, doesn't do the things that I want. I wouldn't worship a God who doesn't agree with me. Those people are just like the scoffers at the cross who point at Jesus and stand in judgment of the perfect king to their doom. I wonder today, are there any areas in your life that you haven't surrendered to Jesus? You say, I love Jesus. I love the idea of, the, of God putting on skin and bones and coming down here and dying for the sins of the world. I love that. I love the idea of the cross. I love the idea of the resurrection. I love many of his teachings. But if Jesus ever wanted to change this part of my life, nope, I can't do it. I'm out. Friends, whatever that corner of your life is, it is standing between you and the kingdom of God. But Jeff, why should I surrender? It's a legitimate question. Like, why should I give Jesus full control over my life? Here, here it is, as simply as I can say it. Jesus Christ the King came to save Jesus, in his life, we've read the biography of Jesus. We've been studying it for two years, and this is one of the things I've been convinced of, and I'm seeing it in my life time after time. Jesus has power over disease and death and darkness. He has power over everything, and yet he doesn't use his power for personal gain. He's not like King Adam, who refused to take responsibility for his people, throws his wife under the bus, blames God. Jesus isn't like that. Jesus is not like David who throws his servants on the front lines so that he can die to benefit David the king. He, Jesus isn't like that. Jesus Christ is a king who stands between you and the enemy and says, enemy, you will have to go through me to get to them. Jesus isn't like the kings of this world who live the high life while their people are starving. 
Jesus isn't like the kings of this world, the rulers of this world who say rules for thee but not for me, who go and dine at five-star restaurants while you're in lockdown. Jesus isn't like that. Jesus Christ is a king who refuses the fruit of the vine so that his servants can dine at the victory banquet. Like the innocent animal, the skin of the innocent animal that covered over Adam's nakedness, like Jonathan's royal robe that covered over David's commonness, like the Roman soldier, you were stained in guilt for rebelling against God. But Jesus Christ set aside his glory of heaven, stripped himself of his majesty, and gave up his life. He surrenders his robe so that people, your, his people can be clothed in glory. He sacrificed his own life so that you could live. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, for your sake, for your sake, he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. For your sake, took a beating. For your sake, endured the nails. For your sake, put up with the mockery. For your sake, refused all of the things that would make it easier for him. For your sake, battled the forces of evil. For your sake, died on an evil hill. For your stake, put a death stake in the enemy's skull. For your sake, he died. You see, my friends, Jesus Christ, this is why you should surrender. This is why you should trust. This is why you should put all of your devotion. This is why you should submit to him. He has good intentions for you. He is the king of kings. He is the almighty God. He is the wonderful counselor. He is the prince of peace. He is God with us. He is God in us, and he is God for us. And so he's worthy You see, that's the point. That's the point of the Gospels. The point of the Gospels, the point of the story, the point of the cross is not that you feel sorry for Jesus and like, okay, I'm going to throw him a bone because I feel sorry for him. I'm going to follow him. No, it's because he's worthy. It's because he's worthy of all honor and glory and praise forever and ever and ever. Amen. The, The height of power and privilege, he gave it all up for your sake. He's worthy of all your trust. He's worthy of all of your time. He's worthy of all of your treasures. He's worthy of all of your talent. He's worthy of it all. He's worthy of all of your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. He is worthy of everything that you could give him. Now, there are people here today. I used to be one of these people. And you want to believe that you can trust Jesus. But because of your past, or because of your life right now, because of the habits and the hangups and the history that you have, you feel like you have a hard time believing that Jesus could have good intentions for you. You have a hard time believing that Jesus would anything but to punish you. This passage ends with the scene of two criminals that are hanging beside Jesus. One on his right and one on his left. Now, crucifixion was typically reserved 
for the very worst type of people in the Roman Empire. They didn't just crucify any criminals. You had to be a bad, bad, bad man to be crucified. So we're not just talking about two, like, little knuckleheads. We're talking about seriously bad dudes, one on Jesus' right, one on Jesus' left. The crucifixion begins at 9 a.m. It lasts for six hours. So sometime between 9 a.m. and 3 p.m., one of these criminals has a change of heart. It was shortly after Jesus is hanging on the cross. All these people are spitting on him. They're ridiculing him. They're making fun of him. They're mocking him. And Jesus looks up to heaven, and he prays a prayer. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. In that moment, the criminal saw a king unlike any king he's ever seen, a king who looks with compassion and forgiveness even on those who treat him like an enemy. And so this man, this bad, bad man on the cross looked over to Jesus and he said this, Luke chapter 23, verse 42, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. In that moment, he put his soul in Jesus' hands. He trusted his soul with Jesus. He relied on the mercy of Jesus, and he submitted to him as king. He says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. You're the king. Have mercy on me when you come into your kingdom. This is Jesus' response. Go and make amends for all of your sins, and then come and see me. Is that what he says? Go and learn the Bible from cover to cover, and once you have all the biblical knowledge, then you can come and see. Is that what he says? Go and fix your attitude, and then I'll consider. Is that what he says? Luke chapter 23, verse 43. Jesus said to them, said to him, truly, I tell you, not maybe, not possibly, not if things change, truly, I tell you, today, you will be with me in paradise. Christ guarantees to lead this repentant sinner to the place that Adam lost to the kingdom that David failed to deliver, to the paradise that no other king can provide. Because Jesus isn't looking for a perfect past. Jesus isn't looking for perfect knowledge. Jesus isn't looking for a perfect heart. Jesus is looking for faith and submission. Wayward soul, prodigal son, wild child, Hopeless case, listen to me today. God knows what you've done. There is no hiding it. The charge is written over your head. And still, knowing all he knows about you, he prays, Father, forgive him. And so I would encourage you today, come as you are. Trust in Jesus as Savior. Submit to him as King and you will be saved. He will lead you along the path of righteousness through the valley of death, through the troubled waters, through the fiery furnace, through the enemy straps, unharmed by the accuser's flaming arrows into the perfect garden, into the heavenly kingdom, into the eternal paradise. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the cross. It's foolishness to the world that's perishing. It's foolishness. They don't get it. They don't understand how worthy you are. But Lord, you've confronted us with your goodness today. There's no way we can hide from it. You are king unlike any king. 
You're a savior, unlike any savior. You're our only hope. And so, Lord, we come to you today as sinners, and we beg for your forgiveness. We beg for your mercy. We beg for the salvation that only you can provide. We beg that you will fight our battles for us. Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to submit to you. Help us to love you. Help us to be devoted to you. Help us to surrender everything to you. Lord, I pray for the person in this room today who is still serving their sinful nature. I pray that they'll be convicted. I pray that you'll help them to see that that does not lead to a perfect kingdom. It leads to being exiled. It leads to being expelled. It leads to death. It doesn't lead to life. And so, Lord, I pray today that you'll give them the courage to step out in faith and put their trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand together. This is a song of invitation and remembrance. In the back of the room, we've got uh, emblems. They represent the body and blood of Christ. And so if you haven't taken those today, I'd encourage you to do that. We've also got altars at the front here. This is a place for you just to lay down your burdens. All the enemies that you're battling in your life, they're too big for you, but nothing's too hard for Jesus. And so you can come and just kneel at this altar and let one of our prayer warriors pray over you. If you're here today and you're far from the Lord, you'd like to know how you can surrender your life to him, will you please come and talk to me?